Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another SACPA session. SACPA acknowledges that this event takes place on the lands of the Blackfoot people and Métis nations of Alberta Region 3, and we pay respect to their past, present, and future cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship to the land. Um, SACPA is also thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we're very happy to have with us um, Don McIntyre on the topic of how can past and present injustices against Indigenous people be reconciled. Thank you for joining us, uh, Don. Don McIntyre is an Ojibwe of the Wolf Clan from Temiskamim First Nation and is an award-winning painter and carver working throughout his life in the traditional style of his territories and more recently layering modern urban life visions into his work. A lifetime academic, Don is currently completing his PhD in law, looking at the legal pluralisms and the abilities of indigenous social legal practices to enhance and improve Western legal paradigms. Um, his passion for academics and creativity drew him away from his practice of naturally to teaching. Don has taught at Duke College, universities, and at First Nation communities in North America and around the world, providing knowledge in the areas of indigenous art and traditions, social innovation, law and society, negotiations, and treaty. He's presently the assistant professor at the University of Lethbridge at the Dillon Business School's Indigenous Governance and Business Management stream. He is a fellow and collaborator with the Waterloo Institute of Social Innovation and Research at the University of Waterloo and faculty at the Haida Gwaii Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today, Don, and we very much look forward to your presentation. Thank you very much. Uh, so I, I would just like to echo, it is my honor to both work and live uh, in the territories of the Sitsikadapi uh, peoples. Um, I am a guest here. I will be a guest my entire life. Uh, and uh, it is a, I am honored that they allow me to stay. Um, today, my topic uh, is, uh, and I'm just want to confirm you guys see in my slides okay yeah uh, is how can past and present injustices against indigenous peoples be reconciled so this is what i was asked to speak on and uh the way that i thought i would do it if we can go next slide um is the agenda is uh we will look at a review i want to review the question i was asked uh, to present on. Then I want to review it. I want to have another look at the talk topic. Um, I'm going to share with you a few good men. Uh, we're going to look specifically at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report uh, from uh, 2015. Uh, and then we're going to look at the report on the report. So the Assembly of First Nations, uh, which is a, a, a governing and lobbying body of the Indian nations of Canada, uh, and I use that term very specifically, uh, they uh, did a report in 2020 saying, how are we doing with the TRC uh, calls to action? Uh, we're going to look at the idea of what are we reconciling, how are we going to reconcile, and then uh, we're going to do an afterword, an afterword where I ask the question, how do we view, how should you view this talk? What did this talk provide? So the next slide is actually what was very specifically asked of me. So they said uh, this uh, in the post 2015 Truth and Reconciliation. Um, uh, sorry, Truth and Reconciliation Commission era of reconciliation. Many Canadians are wondering what reconciliation might mean in their community. Among other injustices, residential schools and the 60 scoop particularly generated many negative impacts on Indigenous families and communities, which continue to challenge their well-being today. 
However, much of Canada's early history and relationship with Indigenous people is still hidden, and that secrecy is likely a serious barrier to reconciliation in Canada. So how do we implement the TRC calls to action that are now under consideration by most levels of government? Should the, TR, should the truth of Canada's shameful treatment of Indigenous peoples, for example, be told as part of the K-12 school and post-secondary curriculum? Um, and I will, apparently, uh, shed light on these issues as well as address uh, uh, Canada's current dilemma of protests and blockades, which arguably are caused by for far too long, having ignored Indigenous rights and their ability to decide what happens on their land. If I take that question, what was I asked to talk about, and I review it, I look at it in through, a, through my lens, um, it is a post- uh, TRC report. Uh, the TRC report has moved away from the commission uh, and has been placed in uh, the the, cent the TRC Centre in Manitoba, uh, which is a research centre. We're going to talk about that briefly. But in this era of reconciliation, and I capitalize reconciliation there because, uh, and these are the semantics that most people who know me, it drives them crazy. Um, but we in Canada think of reconciliation as a noun. We think of it as a destination or a thing that we're going to do and we will be done with. Uh, we can then put it away and pat ourselves on the back because we've done it. And the reality is that reconciliation is a process. It's a verb. It's a thing that we will continually do. So many Canadians are wondering what reconciliation, what that process might mean in their community. And I mean, we can look at it through lenses of the breaches of fiduciary duty, breaches of treaties. Uh, these goes without saying. We spend millions of dollars in court costs proving over and over and over again that these breaches have occurred. Uh, they're not secret. Uh, the residential schools... We have spent, we, the, the, the government of Canada, knowing that there was this gap uh, because of litigations that were potentially going to happen, came to an agreement where they said, we will study, we will look at what happened in the reconciliation uh, in the residential schools and how that should and has affected uh, Canadians. Uh, there were thousands of pages written. It took six full years and cost millions of dollars for Canada to create a report for Canada. In that report, they did an executive summary that was just over 500 pages. Uh, it was CBC's book of the summer to read uh, in 2016. Uh, there were 94 calls to action, 94 the calls to action were the recommendations from the report. And the idea that this is a secret from anyone should not be the case anymore. Uh, the 60 scoop, there have been more than enough reports, more than enough explanations that the 60 scoop uh, which was a time when Aboriginal children uh, were taken from families uh, right at birth uh, and moved across jurisdictional borders, uh, even from Canada to the U.S., where that information was suddenly blocked. And so Aboriginal families, Aboriginal parents could not find where their kids were taken. That happened in the 60s. Uh, we, that shouldn't be a secret, but nor should it be a secret that it has happened uh, with the, the welfare systems that we have in place. It continues to happen in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, and is actually continues to happen now. Uh, if you look at the stats on where it is, it's not a secret. The gaps, we're going to look specifically at these gaps that I've men mentioned, the justice gap, the health gap, the economics gap, the education gap, and the social political gaps that we find in Canada. The reason why I put those down as the not secret things 
is because since the 1970s, uh, and even earlier, but let's stop at the 70s because that gives us 20 years or 50 years. That's a good round number. For the last 50 years, we've had commissions, reports from people like Berger, uh, 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 Mary Ellen Terpel, uh, Murray Sinclair, uh, Harry LaForme. Uh, all of these people have time and again done reports because Canada has said, we recognize, we know that these gaps are there. How do we fix them? And we have all of these reports. We're going to look at a few, but we have all of these reports that say, this is how you fix them. We've called them recommendations. We've called them calls to action. We've called them calls for justice. We've referred to them in all these different ways. Uh, we have variations on what they look like, but over and over again, what we discover is that it is no secret there is a gap in justice which fits two very distinct categories. One of those gaps in justice is um, Aboriginal people are overrepresented in both our federal and uh, our provincial uh, incarcer incarceration rates. Uh, since the report came out and we were supposed to close this gap, the numbers have actually gone up in federal uh, incarcerations and in many provincial and territorial incarcerations. So there are where we are incarcerated more, but also on the other side of that coin, there is victimization where systemically we are seen as victims much more. Uh, within the statistics. Uh, we continue to make the, the newspapers about uh, issues and problems with health gaps. We are, our demographics suggest that I'm not going to live as long as, uh, and this I say it this way because I want to put a face to it. I as an Aboriginal man probably will not live as long as a white Canadian man or a Caucasian Canadian man. That's statistically, that's the reality. Um, I'm more likely to have diabetes. I'm more likely to have uh, a, a, a huge number. So health-wise, not only that, but when I went, enter into the healthcare system, there is, we see over and over again on uh, social media, examples of uh, systemics, systemic problems with the system. The economics of the system uh, we we see those gaps. We see those gaps, and they fall. At some point, these gaps intermingle. They create a net. Uh, our economics. There's a gap in where we fit. Um, in my in my classes that I just finished, uh, I I provided the example that during the pandemic, Canada's billionaires, the top 20 billionaires during the pandemic, made. I think it was $60 billion more. And the, the number that is suggested is that at this point in the pandemic, those 20 billionaires have made somewhere near $100 billion during the pandemic. What I asked my class was, I, I went to show them a PowerPoint and I showed them some of those individuals. And then I said, let me show you all of the Aboriginal billionaires. And I put it up on the screen and it's a blank screen. Don't get me wrong. There are some Aboriginal people who have done quite well. There are hundred millionaires. Uh, there are people who have done very well in business. Uh, but where there is that gap, that gap is partially because of education, partially because of opportunities. Those opportunities come from because of a space where Aboriginal voices are not heard within the social political. None of these are secrets. Uh, so that was the first thing when I was reviewing how I was going to do this talk. The negative impacts on Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal families and communities continuing to challenge all Canadians' well-beings. That's how I would prefer to have that conversation. This is not, and we're going to see why, the idea of reconciliation is not an Aboriginal issue and should not just be an Aboriginal concern. Uh, it is all families in Canada, and Canada's well-being will be enhanced if we can just 
come to a place where uh, that is taken care of. And that is not a secret. We've known this for a very long time, that if everyone is taken care of, if everyone is better, if everyone has potable water, we will be better people. Much of Canada's, and then I changed this phrase, much of Canada's early and contemporary history with Aboriginal populations is hidden, creating serious barriers for reconciliation in Canada. And as I said earlier, uh, the Berger Report, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission Report, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls Report, Law Commission Reports, RCMP Reports, all of these reports tell us that there, these gaps exist, those five gaps that I described exist, uh, and that we need to close them. So how do we implement these calls to action? Uh, and the reality is that if you take any one of these reports that I've mentioned above, uh, it's 94 calls to action. Uh, the RCAP report, the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People in 1996, provided 440 recommendations. Uh, the Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls report provided a number of calls to action, but they all are reiterations of these exact same issues. It's not a secret. We know what has to be done to fix it. The question becomes, how do we implement the calls to action? Who should be taught the truth? So in the, in the question, it was, should we do it in K-12? And I put it to you, should we teach our K-12s the truth? I, I leave that answer to you. When should they be taught? When should children start to be taught the truth? And who should they be taught the truth? How should they be taught the truth? Sorry. How should they be taught the truth? Just tell it to them. Uh, the one thing I always found interesting uh, about the TRC report, so the TRC report came out um, in, in a number of pieces, a number of volumes. Um, and normally in class, I bring all the volumes and people can look at the whole report and it's somewhat daunting. Um, but... 2015 was the year that the TRC report started to roll out. 2016, the Oxford war word of the year was post-truth. And so for me, I was very excited. I was like, that's awesome. We have the truth. The And so the post-truth is now that we have the truth, what do we do with it? But then CBC informed me that actually post-truth, the definition that Oxford provided is what happens when the truth no longer matters? Post-truth is once the truth stops mattering. So the year that we got the truth about the residential schools, the year that the report came out, the truth stopped mattering. And that becomes a big difficulty. So when we start to dig into it, I thought I would give you a great man once said, and the new slide. Um, this is why reconciliation is so essential. Uh, whether you are part of an Aboriginal business, working in partnership with Indigenous nations, or part of a governance structure, to work effectively in Canada, you must know how to communicate and work both the rules and the exceptions to those rules. This is the key to reconciliation. That was by Don McIntyre. Oh, actually, he's not actually a great man. Uh, more than a wise man, he's kind of a wise guy. Uh, and so uh, let's move to somebody who's more wise. Um, and the next slide is actually uh, my grandfather, Frank King. Uh, and what my grandfather always said to me was, before you judge a man, walk a mile in his moccasins. And most people know that part of the term. They understand that. But my grandfather explained it to He went a step further in that walk. And he explained it that way. When you decide he's a jerk, you're a mile away and you have his moccasins. Now, I have to admit, uh, my grandfather, though I think he was a great man, uh, he was kind of a wise guy too. But let me show you a truly wise man. Uh, Murray Sinclair, a former senator. Uh, he just stepped down, sadly. I was very sad to hear that. But he said, Reconciliation is not an Aboriginal problem. It is a Canadian problem. It involves all of us. All people in Canada must be clear, loud, and united 
in expressing their heartfelt belief that reconciliation must happen in order for it to be effective. Our leaders must not fear this onus of reconciliation. The burden is not theirs to bear alone. Rather, reconciliation is a process that involves all parties in this new relationship. Now, uh, Murray Sinclair is, I think, one of the wisest men I've that has managed to get a hold of a microphone and have the public listen for a long time. One of the difficulties is that this man has become, in many ways, the face of reconciliation, the face of the TRC report. And a much better approach is at the end of this, if you were to ask yourself and tell me what reconciliation is and how to fix reconciliation, but do it in a mirror because that is the true face of reconciliation. If we all look in the mirror and tell ourselves how to do it, it cannot be put on the shoulders of one man. Now I've met him. He is a large man. He has broad shoulders but no shoulder is broad enough to bear this all by himself. So the next slide is, let's look at the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Let's look at what, they, what it said. So the TRC report, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, was formed by the Canadian government. Canada recognized there was a problem and invested in finding a solution. As part of a court, it was part of a court-approved residential school settlement agreement negotiated between former students, churches, the governments of Canada, the Assembly of First Nation, the AFN, and other Aboriginal organizations. It is an official, it was an official independent body that provided an opportunity to share individual experiences and stories of Canada's history in a safe and culturally appropriate manner. They went across the country, um, they met with people, they arranged to have experts at all levels, both elders, uh, traditional knowledge holders, but also people who held university degrees, people who were considered the experts. They put it all together to create a huge volume, huge volumes of information uh, that was gathered in safe, culturally appropriate ways. The commission was not about determining guilt or innocence. Um, and it has created a historic account of residential schools, hopefully helping people to heal and encourage reconciliation between all Canadians. One of the stumbling blocks for the TRC, uh, the commissioned report, is this idea that people think that is something that we're going to accomplish, that we're going to get to, and then we can put it on the shelf and forget about it. Reconciliation is about coming to a place where we understand how, where we're all coming from. So the commission has prepared a comprehensive historic record of the policies and operations of the schools. Uh, as I said, it is about 4,000 pages. Uh, my students get scared when I bring it in. Lucky for all of you, uh, my office is, is locked down right now because of the pandemic. So you get to see me here and I don't have access to those books. Um, it was to complete a publicly accessible report that includes 94 calls to action. This they did, um, and it fought, fell into those five categories uh, in some way or form. Uh, to establish the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. This is a research center at the University of Manitoba that is a permanent resource for all Canadians. Um, it hosted national events in different regions across Canada, promoting awareness and public education. So this started a decade ago, over a decade ago, this idea of public education. So it has not been a secret. It's not a secret or should not be a secret. Um, it supported events designed by individual communities and supported commemorative initiatives. Uh, these, in some cases, have been accomplished, in some cases not. Um, and what I want to do is show you that was what they were supposed to do. 
I want to show you what the report card looks like. So the next slide is the AFN 2020 report card. Um, and uh, on my PowerPoint, uh, I'm happy to give my PowerPoint to anyone who wants it. Um, on my PowerPoint, what I've done is in the notes, I've provided access to the full report card um, and uh, the, the link to it uh, and the calls to action. Uh, so uh, if you look, they broke it up into three distinct categories, little progress, moderate progress, and significant progress. Uh, the significant progress, uh, which I'm always happy, and uh, so it says language and culture, and then it shows you which of the calls to action were addressed uh, in that. So 13 to 17 are language and culture. There's been significant progress. Uh, there's been a lot of, of, of movement forward. People have actually taken steps um, to ensure that. Training for public servants, uh, that was call 57. There has been much done in that way. Museums and archives have done things like repatriation, like engaging with uh, things that are sitting in their archives that have been hidden for generations. Uh, making them accessible, making them available, uh, bringing traditional knowledge holders in to actually teach the, the staff at the museum what it is that they're holding, uh, reopening bundles. So all of those things uh, have happened. Uh, the scarier part is when you look at sort of the moderate progress, uh, those are the places where uh, that list of five that I was telling you about continues to rear its head. So child welfare, education, health, uh, uh, missing children, uh, and, and ensuring that newcomers to Canada understand that. There's been only moderate progress. Little progress, again, remember those five that I told you, uh, justice, the Royal Proclamation or the Covenants, those promises, that breach of fiduciary, uh, settlement and agreements, again, those agreements, equity in the legal system, it falls over again and again, education for reconciliation, business and reconciliation. We see these happening over and over again. So these reports, all of these reports, this is a, just a listing, a, a stack of those reports, continue to show us that social, political, economics in business and the levels of poverty, health, education, justice, both incarceration aids and victimization of Aboriginal people still continues to happen. The last report that came up was uh, the Colton Bushi report by the RCMP. It was investigated by the Civilian Review and Complaints Commission Public in Interest Investigation Report. This was done this year and of the 17 recommendations, there was only one recommendation um, that wasn't about uh, how to address evidence, how to do this. Recommendation 17 was that cultural awareness training be provided for all RCMP employees, bearing in mind the factors identified in the recent inquiries. This is the same recommendation that has been happening for 50 years. So it should not be happening. How do we fix it? Well, one of them is that we have to stop moving. Each of those reports had a different term. Um, so we look at terms like BIPOC, uh, which is Black, Indigenous, People of Color, uh, Indigenous, Aboriginal, Indian, Métis, Inuit, on-reserve, off-reserve. All of these terms confuse the issue and don't allow us to figure out exactly what it is that we're talking about. So. Um, you know, the, the latest report was about Indigenous people. Uh, the RCAP report was about Aboriginal people. Uh, First Nation was a term. I, in my life, have been and told that I was by the man. I don't know who the man is, but the man told me I was an Indian, then told me I was a native, then told me I was a First Nation, then told me I was an Aboriginal, then told me I was an Indigenous person. At no point, and they told me each time that it was my term that I picked it. At no point did anyone ever check on me. Um, so um, I think I've not told you a couple of times. Uh, so did I, uh, what we should be looking at now is a, uh, actually if we could go to the last, second to last slide. It is a picture called the seven sacred 
grandfather teachings. Uh, so I don't have time uh, to talk about uh, a triple constraint, which is a business practice and project management and how we can fix the triple constraint by adding culture to the constraints. Um, I don't have, but what I do want to share with you is a very simple truth. Uh, I come from a territory and the Blackfoot have a similar teachings. Uh, the seven, these are the teachings on how to be a good human. And how you be a good human is by walking or learning or being honest, being respectful, do your, everything you do with love, courage, bravery, truth, humility, and wisdom. So the next slide is, how would I answer the question? How would I have, if I want you to view this talk, what may reconciliation mean to your community? The best way to answer that is you be the face of reconciliation. You look in the mirror and tell yourself how you are going to do that reconciliation. Canada's early and contemporary history with Aboriginal people is not hitting. Uh, creating serious barriers to reconciliation in Canada. These reports, the reports that keep on coming over and over again, they tell us over and over again how we can fix uh, the relationship between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. How to implement the calls to action. Uh, who should be taught the truth? Every person in Canada should be taught the truth. It's just... It's very simple. When should they be taught the truth? Now, whether you are new to Canada, a child, you need to know the truth. Why wouldn't you teach kids the truth? How should they be taught the truth? It's very simple and it's why I showed you those seven sacred teachings. Show them the truth honestly, with respect, lovingly, courageously, humbly, and wisely, and you're not gonna hurt our children. Thank you very much. It was an honor to have this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, Don. Wow, you packed in a <laughs> half an hour. This should have been a, I don't know, a lot longer than that. Um, it was a big question you guys asked. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will jump right into the questions. Dan Kazakov, why do you say you specifically use the term, in quotation, Indian nation? So, it's a great question. And I use the term Indian nation because I work in an area in business and governance. And in business and governance, what we're looking for is certainty of terms. Uh, an Indian though some people dislike the term Indian, Indian is a legal term. The, are the laws of Canada, uh, the Indian Act, uh, the treaties, all of those use the term Indian. So if we discount the term, suddenly we have to go to court and figure out what those terms mean. Uh, I am a status Indian. I carry a status card. Uh, and if you do not, uh, I mean, I'm not opposed to like changing the term, uh, but it, it addresses one of the issues that I brought up, I think, uh, in the in the talk. And that's all of the terms that are used to describe and define me that are not my terms. If you want to know how I define myself, I'm Ojibwe or I'm Anishinaabe. That's my nation. That's my tribe. Those are my people. Uh, these collective terms are not my terms, uh, but I know what Indian means because it's been defined by the Indian Act. I know what Indian means because I know what my treaty says it means to the, the, to the governments of Canada and to my people. I know what the promises were made. If we're going to fulfill those promises then it's the place we have to start. Uh, the term terms like First Nation doesn't actually have any meaning. Uh, if you look at it and you look at something like the First Nation uh, Taxation Act, 
in order to understand what First Nation means, they tell you to go and look at the Indian Act because that's what the definition is. So the reason why I said I specifically use that term is because it is the most direct and simplest. And if it hurts people's feelings, what we have to do is actually have that conversation. We have to actually be willing to engage in the conversation. We all have to roll up our sleeves and get our hands dirty and not be afraid to be hurt or to hurt. They're hard conversations because they're difficult. The problem is that we've already been not dealing with it. We know the answers. We've been not dealing with it for 50 years. It's time to get off the pot. Okay, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. There appears to be a lack of awareness in understanding how an action or word spoken by a non-Indigenous person is perceived or responded to differently by police, health services and citizens or business communities. Yet the response, often negative, differs when the same words or action is spoken or taken by an Indigenous person. How does one build this awareness and empathy? It is a great question. And at the school, I have fought hard um, to be able to create courses where we can have those safe places to have these conversations. One of the very difficult things is people are afraid to ask a question like, what's the term I'm supposed to use to refer to you? And I'm, I'm happy when people ask me that question. Now, what I will say is, uh, and this, uh, I was just before this talk having this conversation um, with Annalise, I was saying there's a, there's a, 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 a topic in teams theory um, that says if you can keep your team from knowing who is on the team, they will never win. And so it doesn't matter which outsider organization you are. We internally are constantly, it may look, it may not look like we're fighting, but we are constantly fighting about what the correct term is. You know, I get in trouble. I get flack all the time because I come into meetings, committee meetings, organizations, and I say, I'm going to use Indian. Uh, and I agree with you. I get some leeway because they can say, well, he is, he's got a status card and he's old. So we really can't push back on that old guy that much. Uh, but the reality is there is a pushback. I do have to fight. And the, re the way that you deal with that conversation is to actually have the conversation and explain the reasons why. I am using this term because it is the best legal term. I am using this term because it is the term that best defines who you are. I am using this term, and if you want to give me a better term, I am happy to have it. Now, there is, there is a proviso to this. So when you come and you ask someone, what is the best term I want to be respectful. And this is a great way to address it. I want to be respectful. How would you like to be referred? And I tell you, I want to be referred to as Anishinaabek. The second time you say, you know, Don, you told me how you wanted to be referred. Um, what was it again? And it's a hard word. So I'm happy to tell you a second time. It's Anishinaabek. The third time you ask me, I start to feel like you're not listening and it stops feeling like you want to be as respectful as it's more you want the appearance of being respectful. And then every time I tell you after that, I'm going to say it with a little bit of a cutting edge. And then I'll say, call me whatever you want. Uh, <laughs> our thank next, you, Lord. Right. Our next question comes from Mar Maria Fitzpatrick. Thank you 
for a fantastic presentation. I had the opportunity to participate in the reconciliation process during my career in federal corrections and a member of the child intervention panel. My question, what can I do now and into the future to continue to support the reconciliation process? So I, I have this, it's a great question. Uh, because people want to know, and it is, um, to Maria's point, it is an ongoing process. And there are two, it's, it, there are two pieces to this. One is continually read, educate yourself, uh, continually gather, and it's a terrible th way to have to describe it, but gather ammunition. Continually gather ammunition so that you can have the conversation. The second part of it is when you're sitting down with your family, uh, and this is everybody's family, we all have, uh, the other thing that my grandfather Frank used to say was, uh, red, white, black, brown, yellow, purple. Everybody has, I'll fix his language a bit, a jerk uncle that sits down at family dinner have the conversation we don't want to have the conversation because we just want to have a nice dinner but we are allowing that conversation to hang in the room and not be had and so i challenge people to one you know arm yourselves for the conversation and then don't let up when that person at the table, and it doesn't have to be an uncle, it can be a, an aunt, it can be, it can be a nephew, it can be, somehow it continues. But until we stop allowing it to happen, it will continue. And it is about not letting the silence hang. It is about stepping into the arena and saying, I'm ready for this fight, because I'm armed. With knowledge. <laughs> I am armed with knowledge. Okay, our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Would you speak about the triple constraint? I would, and is it possible to put it back up? Yes. Well, um, what, what slide is it? So it was slide. Uh, let me. Oh, I've got it. 14. Yeah, I got it. By 14. So the triple constraint is a very, very simple idea. It comes from project management. Um, and in project management, what they say is that any project you're going to do, any endeavor you're going to undertake, there are three sides to it. There is scope, uh, there is time, and there are resources. So resources can be in the form of um, money, people, materials, um, and no matter what you want to do, they say that if you want to adjust one of those, so if you want to speed up the time that you're going to fulfill your project, give me more money and more resources and it, I'll get it done. If you want to cut back on my budget, uh, it's going to either take longer or shrink your scope. You can't have everything if you're going to take away my budget. So that's how the triple constraint works. In, and it's a great one to use um, when your boss is constantly saying, I have one more thing I want you to do. Could you just do this? The triple constraint says, look, I'm working on the assumption that um, you recognize that I do 40 hours in my work week. So I'm happy to take on another project. You just tell me which project you don't want me to do anymore because my work week is already full. I don't have extra time for this next project. So in project management, it's an excellent tool and I encourage my students to use it all the time. Um, me and my friend Murray Dion, uh, we wrote a book uh, that we're just now looking for a publisher called ELM, The Essential Leadership Model. And part of Elm was that we spent about 10 years fighting about this idea of the triple constraint and the importance of in indigenous projects, in aboriginal projects, in projects either whether it's building an arena, building a new 
uh, center or reconciliation. What you have to include in that triple constraint is a fourth part, and that fourth part is culture. And that if you want to engage with culture, if you want to indigenize an institution, what you have to figure out is where you're going to put it. So what resources are you going to give up that the institution is already using? The institution has not been sitting around with a plot, a bunch of money and space and time uh, that was empty. They're just waiting for indigenization to happen. So we as people, again, have to be willing to give up some of our space, some of our time, some of our resources, some of our privileged position. And don't get me wrong, I am very recognizing of the fact that I am in very privileged in my position. And I have to give up too. Okay, our next question. Um, actually, I could put up slide 10 for that, the AFN 2020 report card. Our next question yes. comes from Knut Peterson. Many thanks for the talk, Don. So happy this session finally happened a year later than planned. Religious? Religion and churches arguably play a big part in most of the injustices. What are they doing now? And I thought I'd put up slide 10, uh, that slide, yep. because it shows you where they are in the list of <laughs> Little Progress. So, uh, it was, uh, so if you look over at Little Progress, the biggest category, the one with Little Progress, uh, about three quarters of the way down, uh, the Church Apologies and Reconciliation, which is uh, 58 through 61. Uh, one of those was they wanted a written apology from the Pope. Uh, and Canada said, uh, and rightfully so, uh, we believe that the Pope should, uh, but we do not have jurisdictional power over the Pope to make him do that. Uh, so... Now, what should they do? I, I'm, I'm going to share uh, a, a story uh, because it, it shows you the, the difficulties with uh, a black and white answer. There is no black and white answers. Um, early in my legal career, uh, I worked on some of the litigations with the churches. Uh, and at one point, uh, we were doing discoveries. And what we were, what was happening was former students were coming in. Uh, and two women in particular were amazing. They were saying, I've moved on. Uh, you know, bad stuff happened. Uh, my life is great. I have great grandchildren. Uh, I'm expecting a great, great grand grandchildren. Uh, you know, uh, it happened the way it was supposed to happen. That door is shut for me. Uh, then a former nun came in and she was destroyed. She just because she was, she was unaware, um, you know, we had the discovery, she was unaware, but her life, she could not move forward. And I remember thinking, I wish these people could meet. I wish they could have this conversation. This, this woman who, who was part of the church, who gave herself to the church, who had, you know, and was still very, very faithful, very engaged, uh, but could not engage the way she wanted because she felt that she felt the weight of that wrong on her shoulders. And what she needed to hear was from someone who said, now don't, and don't get me wrong, there were huge atrocities and it was terrible. Um, and some people did not recover but one of the important parts of the the of gathering all of those stories is to be able to see the people who did how they moved forward and to create a new story a new narrative that we all can so the church 
has not done enough. And in some ways, what the church has done is they've they've moved funds. This this is public knowledge. They've moved funds and then said they'll declare bankruptcy, that they have nothing. There are also, I will uh, to give there there have been settlements. There have been uh, monies paid. Um, so it is a it is a back and forth. And like the story of those who managed to move on and create great lives for themselves. Um, and I know that is a muddled answer, <laughs> um, but they, the simplest was uh, to just look at the report card and the report card speaks for itself. Little progress has been done in that way. Okay, our next question comes from Trevor Page. The, and he uses quotation marks, the reserves were established as part of a policy of apartheid. Shouldn't they be abolished as they are still keeping us apart? So, I recently wrote a piece that will be coming out shortly for the uh, the Law Society of Ontario, um, and it was I shared a story that my of my grandfather, Frank. Uh, he's getting a lot of he's getting a lot of press today. Um, one of the and in the story, what happens is all of my life, what my when when we would come back to the farm, my grandfather would say, "Welcome home. We're glad to have you home." And then ask the question, how are things back home? Now, my family had moved down to Toronto. Uh, we were hundreds of miles away from the farm. Uh, but for my grandfather, it was all home. Uh, and my territories, uh, if you look at, you know, John Burroughs' book, Rediscovering Canada... Uh, my territories, the territories that his, he's Anishinaabek as well, um, went right into downtown Toronto, uh, you know, where Front Street is, used to be where we would do our fishing villages. So I do agree. What has to happen, though, is we all have to get into a room and say, if the reserves are not going to be there, that is not actually what is Aboriginal or Indian land. Um, the Indian, and it, you would have to look to the treaties, and the treaties suggested that those lands, my ability to walk and hunt, uh, were all of New York State, Quebec, Ontario. And so how we address those issues um, is a very difficult one. And until we figure out how to do it, until we have someone who is brave enough to say, all right, this is ugly and messy. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and we're going to get it done. We're going to get it done. That's an interestingly your suggestion of the reserves not properly representing, I completely agree. Um, making them properly represent the relationship between Aboriginal peoples and Canada, that is reconciliation. Great question, Trevor. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ian Hurdle. The stress of the current pandemic has brought strong cohesion in certain Indigenous communities. How can we encourage it to other communities to emulate their success? I think uh, it's a great question. <laughs> Again, these are phenomenal questions. The, the difficulty uh, and I agree with you. I, uh, you know, the virtual powwow is an amazing thing. Uh, you know, communities who have, you know, put out challenges and have traditional songs uh, traveling in the clouds. Uh, you know, the territories, Lethbridge, uh, the Blackfoot people talk about the, the sky people. Uh, and the, the, the nation in the cloud and that, you know, sky woman. 
uh, who created, uh, you know, the the story that we're we're engaged with on Turtle Island, uh, that she came from the clouds uh, and fell from the sky. And so I find it quite interesting and quite amusing that we're now some of our best being a good human uh, following those seven sacred teachings are happening once we're now forced to be back in the cloud. Uh, you know, we've spent a year in the cloud and some of the most amazing things. What happens though, is that people think it's a secret and it's not, it's all over YouTube. It's all over Facebook. It's all over TikTok. It's all over, uh, Instagram, all of these places are giving people an opportunity to see how to be a good human, how to follow those seven sacred teachings. It's not a secret. You just, people just have to start to look for it and share it. So you say to your uncle, let me show you this TikTok thing. Let me show you this. Let me take you to Facebook. Let me take you, let me take you to the cloud where you can I'll introduce you to the sky people. Um, we have two more questions left. Lori Schultz, uh, would you speak to the concept of a gifting economy and how this has impacted and impacts the relationship and treaties between settlers and Aboriginal peoples and reconciliation? I feel like, I feel like this is a setup. <laughs> it's like, the heck so uh one of my big bugbears uh and so thank you lord <laughs> one of my big bugbears one of the things that i try to get people to understand is what we are trying to reconcile and it is the idea of reconciling apples with oranges uh, because indigenous communities pre-contact communities engaged in gifting economies uh, so things like the giveaway, uh, the potlatch, these are forms of gifting economy. So there was no commodified system. You could not exchange. There was no currency, despite what you may have read. And I'm happy to have the conversation. I have armed myself. I'm prepared to have the conversation. Not today, but I'm happy to have that conversation. There was no you know, wampum was not the same as coin. Uh, bundles of tobacco, those were not dollar values. Uh, that came with the settler economy. Uh, that came with imperialism. It came with colonialism. Prior to that, the gifting economy was about the idea that the way you showed your value in the world was by how much you had given away, how you, what service and material you had provided to your neighbor, to your fellow man. And it was whatever gift creator had given you, you shared that gift. And it created a relationship with you and your community. That is one piece that we have to reconcile if we're going to indigenize our community. The difficulty is that we're now living in a commodified economy, which says that the way that I create esteem, the way that I present myself or show my value to my society is by how much I have. So you have the billionaires who found more billions and made themselves more esteemed they end up on the front page of a fortune 500 saying that they are the best of the best and yet the person who gave his last 20 dollars to ensure that somebody ate or the person who spent the entire day ensuring that an elder was fed uh, or had firewood or those ideas we don't hold those in the same esteem we don't recognize the fact that somebody took, went hunting and provide, or fishing and provided food to the community. Um, and if they're not careful, they'll get charged for ensuring that their entire community is taken care of. 
So that becomes one of the biggest challenges with reconciliation is we are comparing gifting economies with commodified economies, apples with oranges. Okay, um, James Byrne, um, is colonization simply a wealth grab? Is colonization in North America different than wealth theft in so many places around the world? How important is wealth in reconciling injustices? So, um, I, I, I can only provide you my sense of it, and it ties into that gifting economies. Um, the idea of gifting economies is not my own. Um, uh, I've, I've played with it for many years, but it comes from a gentleman named uh, Marcel Mauss. Um, and it's M-A-U-S-S. And what Mouse found was he went and looked at um, archaic, his word, not mine, uh, archaic cultures and societies uh, around the world. So everywhere that imperialism and colonialism had taken settler populations. Uh, and what he discovered was that the way that you switch it is to bring in coins. And there's an interesting, this is a weird aside, but there's an interesting, uh, there's many stories of a, a, a Greek poet named Simonides. And Simonides, we don't have any of his poems left. What we know about Simonides was he was the rock star of Greece uh, at the time that the Romans introduced coins. And so he ran into a difficulty because what he wanted was xenos. He wanted all of the privilege of the gifting economy of the Greeks. So he wanted the king's best bed. He wanted the best piece of food. He wanted to be considered a guest. Um, and he wanted all of the best stuff. But when the Romans started to bring drachmas in, he wanted to be paid as the very best. And he became known as a very bitter man because he would scream, I want to be paid, I don't know, 10,000 drachmas. Uh, and then would ask where he was supposed to sleep, where he was supposed to sit, where he was supposed to. And what the kings, what the court started to say was, we don't care. Our business is done. We've paid you. You have no place here. And Simonides didn't know how to deal with this. My sense is that this in some ways is very much like a trickster. It's a game that, you know, either Napi here or Nanabush in my territory, Glooscap in the Maritimes, Raven. Uh, it is a trick that those trickster, that that trickster is playing on us to say, so you think you can follow the seven grandfather teachings? You think you can be a good human? and do all of those sacred things? Can you do it with cash in hand? Can you do it and try to reconcile your place in a commodified economy and a gifting economy? And so that is the lesson that Trickster is teaching us now. Thank okay. you. Yes, that was the end of our questions. Um, Quite a lot of thank yous, uh, Lord Schultz. Don, thank you for your thought-provoking presentation. You've provided much food for thought as we live our reconciliation. Bev Mandol, thank you for sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Ian Hurdle, many thanks. Excellent. And some others up the queue. Um, Don, before we end this session, and certainly thanks on behalf of SACPA for your time here today and your excellent presentation. We, we're very grateful to have you. Um, and as Knut said, a year overdue. Um, before we end this presentation, do you have a take home message for our viewers today? I do. Um, and I think it is simply if you look at that last slide um 
Is that the slide on how is that the slide on how to view this talk? 16, how to view this talk. 17, yeah, okay, got it. Yeah. Or yeah, sorry, 17, 16, no, you're right. Yeah. Um so the the simple answer and it, it is two pieces. It is one, um look in the mirror and ask you ask yourself those final questions in the highlight. Um and I, I found it incredibly interesting when I was finishing off this talk, the idea of who should be taught the truth, you know, and when do we start teaching our kids the truth? Uh, you know, when do we tell new to Canada, you know, one of the two TRCs is newcomers to Canada. So when do we tell them the truth? Um, and so if you stand in front of a mirror and say, you know, I, as one of the people in Canada, when should I speak the truth? Who should I speak the truth to? Um, and then the simplest is how do I, how should I speak my truth? The truth that I know, do it honestly, with respect, do it lovingly courageously do it humbly and do it wisely and to quote another great man the truth will set you free thank you all very much chimaguech it was an honor thank you and for our viewers, uh, next week, we have a special session on Tuesday, May 18th at 10 a.m. with Dr. Dwayne Brett, with the UCP government running behind the NDP in the polls halfway through its mandate. What can they do to re-earn the trust of Albertans? And then on the regular, regular Thursday session, with Mandy Olsgaard, what does an independent case study of the Alberta Energy Regulators coal mining regulation tell us? And with that, we will end the stream. Thank you very much for joining. Miigwech, thank you all.